the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Iran suspends the morality police responsible for sparking mass protests. Their time is up and that the, they, they are on borrowed time at this point. Elon Musk reveals Twitter's suppressing tweets surrounding Hunter Biden. What did the Biden administration do when they became president? Fourth quarter economic gains may hint at a coming recession. It would be historically unique with these indicators the way they are not to go into recession. This is the Daybreak Insider Podcast. Your first look at today's top stories. That would be Monday. This episode of the Daybreak Insider Podcast is sponsored by Epic TV. If you're looking for an unbiased, truthful, and resilient news source, check them out today. They have a special offer for their viewers. Just sign up and start watching. No credit card required. No strings attached. If you decide to subscribe within 14 days, it's just $1.00 for two months. So go to watchepictimes.com slash daybreak to subscribe. On Sunday, reports surfaced that Iran's Attorney General Mohammad Montazeri had abolished its morality police. The news comes after ongoing protests that have consumed the country after the death of Masa Amini two months ago. She was arrested by the Iranian morality police for allegedly violating Iran's strict dress code for women. MSNBC's Raf Sanchez reports that while a senior Iranian official claims the morality police has been abolished, it has not been confirmed by outside sources or the Ayatollah. Iran's infamous morality police have basically disappeared over the last couple of weeks from the streets of Tehran and other major cities. Now, what happened today was not a formal declaration. Instead, the prosecutor general of Iran was attending a religious conference, and he was asked at that conference, why have the morality police been shut down? And he didn't take issue with the premise of that question. Instead, he said about the morality police, the same institution that established it has now abolished it. Now, we should be really clear. The prosecutor general is not in charge of the morality police. And Ali, as you know, nothing in Iran is final until Iran's supreme leader, Ayatollah Khamenei, says it is. But this is a very, very significant moment. This is a very senior Iranian official appearing to say that the morality police have been abolished. And that chimes with the lived experience of Iranians. Women are walking around in in central Tehran right now without the hijab and where a couple of months ago they would have been instantly pounced on by the morality police. They say they are largely being left alone. Sanchez says that Iranian officials are also saying they will look at the law mandating the hijab. 
also worth noting, the prosecutor general said the legislation that makes the hijab mandatory in Iran is being reviewed by both the judiciary and the parliament. He said there's, this is going to be a 15-day review. We don't know what is going to come out of it. But Ali, as you were saying, the morality police have been the focus of so much public anger in Iran over the last couple of weeks. It was the morality police that stopped Masa Amini before her death. And it is possible that this slightly kind of roundabout way that the Iranian regime appears to have made this announcement is their way of making a concession to the protesters without appearing to make a concession in the same way that in China the government appears to be inching away from this zero COVID policy after the protests of the last 10 days, but without acknowledging that they are giving in to the demands of the protesters. Like I said, not an official declaration. We have not yet heard from the Supreme Supreme leader of Iran, but this does appear to be a very significant turning point in the Islamic Republic after these months and months of protests. However, protesters from inside the country contradict the story that Iran has disbanded the morality police. This protester, who wishes to remain anonymous, says that the morality police are simply focused elsewhere. It is a gross misinterpretation to say that the morality police have ceased to exist. The way I see it, for now, their focus has merely shifted. The authorities have been too busy trying to crack down on the protests by making political arrests and whatnot. So recently, this has basically been their main priority, as opposed to merely taking in women for improper hijab. The fact that they aren't currently operating as they used to doesn't mean that they've been formally abolished. This protester goes on to say that even if the morality police were to be abolished, they would not stop protesting. I don't think that the protests will stop. Uh, Even if the morality police, or as some in the past have liked to use the euphemism fashion police, were to be legally and formally abolished, that would not dissuade the Iranian public from attaining the higher collective goal that has formed, which targets the core and the essence of the dictatorship we've been living under. Uh, With all the murder and bloodshed and arrests and the looming danger of execution for those detained, most us Iranians have grown exponentially angrier and see it as betrayal to go about our usual lives and pretend that nothing's happened. Some recent chants we hear in protests are we will not forgive or forget or like we swear on the blood of our compatriots that we will be standing until the very end and that this is our last message. Our goal is the entirety of this regime. Mash Madara, founder of the Iranian Diaspora Collective, explains that the story seems to be a misinformation campaign from the Iranian government. Look, it is fair to say that the Islamic Republic feels like they are on the ropes at this point in time. Then we're, it's fair to say the diaspora, the Western audiences are winning this information war. I think they are looking to fight back. And I think more importantly, they're looking to, to put out the news of these big general strikes that are happening here later this week where the, the uh, Iranian people are calling for three days of strikes. That's workers, that's students, that's uh, people across medical fields. Um, and I think these strikes are one of the greatest threats to the Islamic Republic, and I think this is their attempt to uh, squash these stories. It's unfortunate the story that came out this morning. Uh, We're happy to see various different media sources correcting the headlines, pulling down the stories, uh, because this this story has no uh, credibility, it's unsubstantiated, um, and it actually causes uh, causes, uh, um, 
it's not helping the protesters on the ground who are calling for reform, not for reform, but for regime change. Madara believes that the Iranian regime knows they are on borrowed time because they are losing power. There are over 18,000 political prisoners right t- right now today in Iran. We're talking about 450 some odd people have been murdered. Over 60, 64 of them have been children. So if they're going to release all of these political pr- prisoners, we would consider that. That would be a statement. Um, if they were going to uh, allow families to hold funerals, that would be a statement. But they're not doing that. This is an attempt to squash the news around these general strikes. I think the Islamic Republic knows that as these strikes grow, these protests grow, it becomes more and more dangerous for them that their power is dwindling. I think the Iranian people are growing in courage. I think the Western audiences are coming to be their partners in terms of communication and how we can support on the other side. But I think this is a big sign that they know that their time is up and that that they they are on borrowed time at this point. Madara says what Iranians need more than anything is accurate reporting. I think you have amazing organizers inside and outside of the country working across many, 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 many lines trying to communicate how to push these strikes to the next level, how to get more people on the streets, and how to get the Western audiences, and more importantly, the Western governments involved in a non-military support of regime change. That's what has to happen here. We are dealing with 18,000 people. The amount of sexual violence and the stories of women being brutally raped, uh, gender-based violence, both against men and women, children. We're talking about people as young as 4, 12, 16. Uh, This is the work of the UN. This is the work of many nonprofits out there reporting on this. What we need is accurate reporting. We need the voices of the Iranian activists here in the West, the Iranian academics, the people who've been working on these issues for the past 20 some odd years. We need them to have the opportunity to start to come forward. uh, And we need the West to really aid them. But if you see these protesters, they are not scared. They are not backing down. And I think you're going to see big news coming out of Iran over the next few days with these strikes, because these strikes are no small thing. And I think the Islamic Republic is terrified. Over the weekend, widespread power outages in south central North Carolina prompted a criminal investigation as evidence of intentional gunfire at an electric substation were uncovered. According to current reports, an estimated 45,000 customers are without power with no time frame of a restoration because of the number of facilities involved in the work. As a result, power may potentially be out until Thursday while equipment at the substation is replaced. Ronnie Fields is the Moore County Sheriff and says his team is determined to catch the culprits. We faced something last night here in Moore County that uh, we've never faced before. Uh, But I promise you, we're going to get through this and we'll get through it together. Uh, Moore County is very strong. Uh, We're very united here in Moore County. And uh, we're not going to let this uh, hold us back. And I can promise you to the perpetrators out there, we will find them. Moore explains that his department is receiving help from the FBI to find the perpetrator or perpetrators. On Saturday evening, December 3rd, shortly after 7 p.m., power outages began here in the Carthage area. Shortly thereafter, the outages would spread to the greater majority of central and southern Moore County. 
Upon the arrival of the power crews and our deputies, extensive damage uh, was uh, found at their substations. Evidence at the scene indicated that the uh, showed that the firearm had been used uh, to disable the equipment. Our deputies, along with all municipalities, police officers, state, SBI, different ones come out and assisted us uh, throughout the night uh, to provide security at all of our substations. Field says that his county is now implementing a curfew. We come to the agreement to best to protect our citizens and to protect the businesses of our county. We going to implement a curfew tonight starting at 9 p.m. And that's countywide from 9 p.m. to 5 a.m. Authorities are still looking for the individuals responsible for firing multiple shots at that substation, causing severe damage to the equipment as well as the motivation for doing so. On Friday, Twitter CEO Elon Musk, through a series of tweets, seemed to show that Twitter executives may have been influenced by outside sources when it came to the handling of the Hunter Biden laptop story before the 2020 presidential campaign and took steps to block it. Musk tweeted a lengthy Twitter thread by journalist Matt Taibbi detailing internal documents that Musk apparently fed Taibbi. According to Taibbi, the emails he was given seemed to show a debate on how to handle tweets surrounding the New York Post story on Hunter Biden's laptop and whether censorship was the right call. At the time, former intelligence officials said the story was likely Russian disinformation. However, John Ratcliffe, who was the director of national intelligence at the time, said that the laptop story and the Russian disinformation campaigns were unrelated. Joe Khalil of News Nation explains that while Taibbi says both Democrats and Republicans routinely ask Twitter to moderate content for them, Taibbi suggests that Twitter was unbalanced in favor of Democrats. We did get the thread. It was a long Twitter thread from journalist Matt Taibbi. And Taibbi claims that Twitter staff had an open line of communication to both the Trump White House and to the Biden campaign at the time. And he says that both camps pretty often reached out to Twitter to either block stories or tweets they felt were unfair, inaccurate, or straight up misinformation. Twitter does have a content moderation team that evaluates those requests, but Taibbi makes the claim that that system was unbalanced in favor of left-leaning requests because Taibbi argues Twitter staff uh, leans left. Khalil reports on how Twitter ultimately decided to allegedly suppress the Hunter Biden story. Now, on the Hunter Biden story specifically, Taibbi's thread shows there was a pretty lively debate behind the scenes over how to handle it. And he posts some emails showing this stuff. Largely and maybe surprisingly, there was not a lot of input from Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey at the time. Twitter officials' decision to ultimately suppress that story was based on its hacked material policy, despite no real hard evidence at that time that anything from the laptop story was gained from foreign hacks. Again, according to the emails that uh, Taibbi released. Now, when some Twitter officials asked questions about that decision, Taibbi cites an anonymous former employee on background who says 
quote, hacking was the excuse, but within a few hours, pretty much everyone realized that wasn't going to hold, but no one had the guts to reverse it. Khalil goes on to say that apparently Democrat Congressman Rokana of California pushed back on Twitter's decision to pull the New York Post article. And there was a lot of behind the scenes pushback, including one from House Democrat Congressman Rokana. The Democrat representing parts of Silicon Valley said in an email to Twitter staff, uh, quote, in the heat of a presidential campaign, restricting dissemination of news articles even in New York Post is far right, seems like it'll invite more backlash than it'll do good. And in fact, the internal emails that Taibbi posted uh, did show that there was quite a bit of pushback, just not just from Republicans, but also from quite a few Democrats who just had issues with how Twitter was handling the story. Khalil says that emails referenced in Taibbi's Twitter thread have not as yet been independently verified. In the end, they ultimately decided that they were going to uh, suppress the story, and they actually uh, um, took away New York Post's Twitter account for about 16 days. Ultimately, the CEO at the time, Jack Dorsey, said that that was a mistake. Now, we should just clarify here at News Nation: we have not independently verified any of the emails that uh, Matt Taibbi put in uh, that Twitter thread that he's been sourcing for these stories. He also actually said that he had to agree to certain conditions to get a lot of this information, but he wouldn't exactly clarify, Natasha, what the conditions were that he did to get this story. Clay Travis, founder of OutKick and co-host of the Clay and Buck radio show, said that, in his opinion, this is a scandal that shows collusion between Democrats and big tech. This makes uh, Watergate seem like jaywalking, um, and, uh, and, and I don't think that's hyperbole. As Elon Musk continues to release all of this clearly high-level communication between major aspects of the Democrat Party and big tech executives, this is just going to continue to grow. So far, what we have seen, Will, is about uh, interactions between the Biden campaign and top executives at Twitter. That is, before Joe Biden was actually elected, clearly there was a rig job, a collusion in force in, uh, in this aspect associated with the New York Post story. Travis goes on to say that he's concerned about what kind of communication the Biden administration has had with tech companies since being sworn into office. But what I'm actually more intrigued to see, Will, is what did the Biden administration do when they became president, when they were in the White House? Because we know Jen Psaki bragged from the White House podium about how the White House was regularly demanding that different uh, tweets and that different people be censored on these platforms. That's part one. I'm looking forward to seeing what happened when they're in the administration. The other thing is, Will, if this is happening at Twitter, do we doubt that it's happening at Facebook? Do we doubt that it's happening at Instagram, at YouTube, at Google? All of the other big tech companies, which are clearly aligned with the left wing of the Democrat Party, all we're seeing is one small snap, uh, snip of, of the larger context, right? Because Elon Musk is making all this public. It's certainly not just Twitter that had this relationship with the Biden campaign and then moving into the Biden administration, which mm. calls into question many different aspects of unconstitutional collusion once Biden became president of the United States and they were making demands to bring down their right. political foes. Travis explains how the media, in his opinion, is trying 
to bury the story. New York Times this morning, right before I was going to come on, I went through their entire app. Yeah. Not one single story about Elon Musk or Twitter. Washington Post. Democracy dies in darkness is literally at the top of their uh, newspaper. Right. Not one single story about Elon Musk or Twitter. Will, they've been covering everything Elon Musk does with a fine-tooth comb every time he sends a tweet. And then today, it's been covered. And yeah. suddenly all of this, they can't even bother to cover any of it? Right. It's crazy. House Republican leader Kevin McCarthy reacted to the story by releasing a statement that read, We're learning in real time how Twitter colluded to silence the truth about Hunter Biden's laptop just days before the 2020 presidential election. However, Democrats say there is no scandal. Representative Ted Lieu of California said in a tweet, Twitter got complaints from lots of folks, including the Biden campaign, the Trump White House, and your cousin's friend. Sometimes Twitter listened, and sometimes it didn't. President Biden's student loan cancellation plan is heading to the Supreme Court. Daybreak Insider's White House correspondent Greg Clugston has more on this developing story. The president's plan to offer up to $20,000 in federal student loan debt relief for millions of borrowers has faced legal challenges, and now it's being taken up by the nation's highest court. Supreme Court justices have agreed to hear oral arguments in the case and determine whether the program is legal. In the meantime, the court is blocking the loan forgiveness plan from going into effect until it gives a final answer early next summer. Greg Clugston, Washington. Last week, Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell suggested that even though the Fed had raised interest rates by three-quarters of a point, the Fed will still likely raise rates by a smaller amount again later this month. After a November meeting, we noted that we anticipated that ongoing rate increases will be appropriate in order to attain a policy stance that is sufficiently restrictive to move inflation down to 2% over time. Monetary policy affects the economy and inflation with uncertain lags, and the full effects of our rapid tightening so far are yet to be felt. Thus, it makes sense to moderate the pace of our rate increases as we approach the level of restraint that will be sufficient to bring inflation down. The time for moderating the pace of rate increases may come as soon as the December meeting. Given our our progress in tightening policy, the timing of that moderation is far less significant than the questions of how much further we will need to raise rates to control inflation and the length of time it will be necessary to hold policy at a restrictive level. It is likely that restoring price stability will require holding policy at a restrictive level for some time. Officials are aiming for inflation to get back to 2% at an annual rate. However, Powell's statement has led some economic experts to caution that the continuous rate hikes could nullify the chances of a so-called soft landing, with some even predicting recession next year. Tony Dwyer is with Canaccord Genuity and explains how economists are looking at the yield curve in order to gauge how the U.S. economy will lapse into a recession. So there's three things that, Mel, that we're looking at, and the viewers can track it. The three things we're looking at, it's not just the yield curves. Anytime the percentage of yield curves that are inverted gets above 55%. So you don't use the 210, the three months. You know, people pick whatever one they want for the day. Let's use them all. Anytime you've had more than 55% of them inverted, 
you've gone into a recession. We have 82 percent as of uh, as of early this week. We had 82 percent of them inverted. Dwyer goes on to say that he believes that, in his opinion, it would contradict historical precedent if the economy doesn't go into a recession with the data he's reading. The leading economic indicators, any time that you've had them at the current level, you've been in or going into a recession. And the Philly Fed diffusion at one-month diffusion index, uh, which is kind of an interesting indicator, it, it looks at really the labor, different labor metrics um, for each state, and the Philly Fed measures it versus a month ago when it's hit this negative a level, you've gone into recession. So I'm not, you know, you know me, I know Mel, I change my opinion like 50 times a day every time there's a tick. So I got to go by the data. And the data is very clear that it would be historically unique with these indicators the way they are not to go into recession. And it would be historically unique for the market to um, not bottom during the recession. In other words, you haven't made the low yet. A daunting canoe voyage covering 300 miles across a stretch of the Pacific Ocean is finally underway. Daybreak Insider's Jason Walker is tracking that trek. It's the Hokey My Challenge, which started near Rapanu, a territory in the Pacific that's part of Chile and is better known as Easter Island. The event consists of a canoe voyage by 12 people seeking to celebrate the union of the islands of Polynesia. The athletes have been training for months, preparing for a three-day trip that will take them to Motu Motirohiva, another island in the mid-Pacific that belongs to Chile. Jason Walker reporting. And finally, as Hawaii's Mauna Loa erupts, it isn't just drawing geologists. The world's largest volcano is also drawing reverence from many native Hawaiians. An eruption of a volcano like Mauna Loa has a deep yet very personal cultural significance for many native Hawaiians. It can be an opportunity to feel a connection with creation itself through the way the lava gives birth to new land. Hawaiian resident Willette says the eruption at Mauna Loa is momentous for her family. For me, this is an epic time for our people to have Poliahu at home on Mauna Kea and to have Tutupele here on Mauna Loa and for all the elements that we have been experiencing over the last few days, this is an epic time for us. Native Hawaiian Ilana says she's praying to Pele as Mauna Loa pours lava down the mountainside. As a Native Hawaiian, I wanted to come and pay my respects to our Tutu Pele, um, which we lovingly call the goddess of the volcano. And this volcano flow that is going on... Dane Phillips with the U.S. Geological Society's Hawaiian Volcano Observatory says there's just one active fissure at this time, and it appears the lava flow is slowing. Assuming that there are no dramatic changes um, in terms of the output or or a new fissure or thing like that, um, then it's primarily a, a control of the topography itself along with the characteristics of the flow and how likely it is to pile up on itself as opposed to backing up or spreading out or things like that. Subscribe to the Daybreak Insider Podcast at Apple or Google Podcast, Spotify, or SalemPodcastNetwork.com. Get our companion Daybreak Insider newsletter each morning at daybreakinsider.com. 
Ongoing coverage of breaking news and commentary at srnnews.com and townhall.com. Thanks for starting your day with us. I'm Mike Scott. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.